Well, thank you for teaching us that timely song this morning. Uh, that's an original song of Chris's. He wrote that a while back, and I just think that just gives a little taste of what we're in store for in the future uh, of this uh, godly, gifted man that God has blessed our church with to lead us in worship on a weekly basis. And um, in fact, when I was looking over the, the bulletin, Chris, and racking my brain and praying about what to, what to preach this morning that would hopefully minister to our souls, um, that song just jumped out at me, that's the title, Unchanging. And I thought, that's it. That's it. So that song inspired this sermon. So we'll see how that goes. The title of this morning's message is A Never-Changing God in an Ever-Changing World. On Sunday morning, January 7th, 1855, at New Park Street Chapel in Southward England, C.H. Spurgeon preached a sermon on the immutability of God based on Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, which says, quote, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. And after reading the text, he began his sermon like this. It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom we call Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all of our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned by its infinity. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands the mind. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and Him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And while humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory. Oh, there is, in contemplating Christ, a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. And then he said this, he said, I know nothing which can comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. 
And then he said, it is to that subject that I invite you this morning. And he went on to preach on the immutability, the unchanging nature of God. A preacher from our own generation echoed Spurgeon's words in a simpler but no less profound way. Listen to what Chuck Swindoll said. Regardless of the adversity we suffer, a sound understanding of God will help ease our pain and provide us with hope. Without a clear grasp on who God is and how he relates to us, we are adrift on the sea of life, unprepared for the storms that are sure to strike us. However, the better we know God, the more equipped we are to weather whatever comes our way. A proper understanding of God brings needed and reassuring perspective in the midst of life's pain. For many of us, this was a a painful week. It was a rough week that caused us to experience a, a whirlwind of emotions and shock and grief and pain and anger and fear and I can't even, I have to include joy because we just had yesterday a a tremendous uh, wedding here with Andrew and Ashley Marsh and um, they're off celebrating their honeymoon now with great joy, but what a Christ-centered, God-honoring marriage that just filled all of our hearts with joy who were here. And so it's just been this this whirlwind uh, of emotions, these conflicting feelings uh, that most of us have been uh, dealing with, uh, highs and lows and sorrowful yet rejoicing all week long. For me, it started by learning on Monday that yet another well-known pastor resigned from his church because he committed adultery. Then I received an email informing me that a dear woman in our church had fallen and hit her head and had to be rushed to the emergency room, and the next thing I know, I'm standing by her bed in ICU consoling her husband, who was in total shock as he had to prematurely say goodbye to the love of his life. And then like most of you, I was both saddened and and sickened when I heard the news on Friday that the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage, making that the law of our country. And then hearing our president respond by saying, quote, today we can say in no uncertain terms that we have made our union a little more perfect. And then had the White House lit up with rainbow-colored lights, our executive mansion. And on that very same day, our president sang Amazing Grace at a church in Charleston, South Carolina, during his eulogy of the pastor that was killed in that recent church shooting. And then he tweeted, quote, may God continue to shed his grace on the United States of America. How are we to process all this? These are, these are sad, confusing, even scary times in which we live. And we need to find comfort and confidence in the unchanging character of God. That as we read earlier in Psalm 103, God is still on his throne. And while everything changed... Nothing changed. I was encouraged to read Al Mohler's perspective on the Supreme Court decision. He had a special briefing that he entitled, Everything has changed and nothing has changed. 
And he went on to say this, quote, God's truth has not changed. The Holy Scriptures have not changed. The gospel of Jesus Christ has not changed. The church's mission has not changed. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Now, if you're like me, you don't like change. I don't do change well. Um, Kelly's had to coax me along in my life to change my hairdo, to change my wardrobe, and I'm like, hey, hon, it's coming back around. Why don't, I don't need to change now. Everything I, you know, just, you know, you wait long enough, right, and you're back in style. But we've all grown accustomed to living in a world where everything is constantly changing. The seasons change, the weather changes, the cultures change, countries change, communities change, companies change, churches change, laws change, fads and fashions change, marriages change, families change, friendships change, people change, our mind changes, our attitude changes, our moods change, our looks change, our bodies change. Everything is in constant flux. Everything and everyone in the universe is subject to change except for God. God never changes. He always stays the same. And his unchanging character is what sets him apart from everyone and everything else. And as I've already mentioned, theologians refer to this as God's immutability. Big fancy word that is simply the opposite of mutable or mutation. Well, we know what that means. It, it means you're able to mutate or, or change. Well, guess what? God does not change. He, he undergoes no mutations. He's immutable. He can't improve or get better, nor can he decay or deteriorate or get any worse. Philip Ryken in his book on the attributes of God says this, God lives forever without mutation, alteration, variation, or fluctuation. He always remains the same. The reason why God does not change is because he's perfect just the way he is. A.W. Pink, in his classic work on the attributes of God, says God has neither evolved, grown, nor improved. All that he is today, he has ever been and ever will be. He cannot change for the better, for he is already perfect, and being perfect, he can't change for the worse. Altogether unaffected by anything outside himself, improvement or deterioration is impossible. He is perpetually the same. I want to look at a couple verses with you from which we derive the doctrine of immutability. Turn with me to Psalm 102, verse 25. Psalm 102, verse 25. This is the prayer of, of the afflicted when he's faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. And so here's somebody who's afflicted. They're enduring some kind of trial or tribulation and they're, they're crying out to the Lord. They're pouring out their complaint before the Lord. And he says in Psalm 102, verse 25, Of old you founded the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. All of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them and they will be changed 
but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. And then, of course, we've got Malachi chapter 3, 6, the passage that I quoted at the beginning, uh, the, the, the text of Spurgeon's sermon, Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, for I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. I mean, that's what a great verse. Why is it that we are not consumed? Why is it that we can live in this ever-changing world and not be overwhelmed and overcome? It's because God does not change. Then you've got James 1.17. James 1.17, talking about the, the goodness of the Lord. James 1.17 says this, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And then, of course, there's Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, talking about God in Christ. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. A.W. Tozier, commenting on that verse in his knowledge of the holy, said this, all that God is, he has always been, and all that he has been and is, he will ever be. In other words, God is the same today as he was yesterday, and he will be the same tomorrow as he is today. Now, for some unfathomable reason, there are smarty-pants theologians who want to steal this precious doctrine from the church and from Christians. And there's been an increasing attack on the doctrine of God's immutability. And as is often the case, it, it was first launched in liberal seminaries in Europe and now has arrived on the shores of America. And it's finding its way into mainstream evangelical theology. And there are books that you can go to and purchase at the local Christian bookstore that would suggest that God is in process that he grows and matures over time just like we do. And they, they want us to believe that God is spontaneous and he's risk-taking. And, and this whole planet Earth thing was a big risk. He took a huge risk in putting a bunch of knucklehead sinners like us on planet Earth and just kind of had to sit back and watch what we would do. And he's just been responding ever since. He doesn't know what the future holds because it partly depends on us. And so he has to wait to see what we're going to do, and then he responds accordingly. Hopefully that's just defying your every orthodox bone in your body, right? It's, it's referred to as the openness of God or open theism. In other words, it's simply a way of saying that God is open to change. That's basically what they're saying. Open theism, the openness of God, he's open to change. And these false teachers base a lot of their opinions on passages that talk about God repenting. You're like, whoa, that's in the Bible? Yeah, there's a couple places that talk about God repenting. And we know the word repentance or repent means to what? To change. It mentions that God changed his mind. For example, Genesis chapter 6 
talk about the, the great uh, risks that he took with us as the human race. He had to deal with us right off the bat in Genesis chapter 6 with the flood. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. He's like, man, this didn't turn out the way I was expecting. Man, these guys went like totally rebelled against me. Is that what he's saying? No. The Lord said, or excuse me, it says verse 6, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, but for I am sorry that I have made them. So this was, uh, the flood was a contingency plan in, in the minds of the open theists. This was, this was not the original sovereign plan of God, uh, but once he realized that uh, the human race went off course, he had to figure out a way to wipe them all out and start all over again. And so the flood was an audible. God called an audible with the flood. How about in Exodus chapter 32, maybe a little bit more challenging to think through, Exodus chapter 32, verse 7, this is where Moses was up on the, uh, was up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments from God, and uh, while he was away, the nation of Israel decided that uh, they needed some, something to worship, and so they made this golden calf, and they began worshiping uh, the golden calf, and God said, hey Moses, um, time out. We got to go down and deal with, with the people. And uh, Exodus 32, verse 7, then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Notice he's, he's calling them his people. <laughs> he's like, wait a minute, God, I thought it was like, let my people go. I thought this was, this was your people. Now, now, my, now are they are they all of a sudden my people? They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and I will make of you a great nation. So again, is God like, uh, oh, this kind of took me by surprise. I wasn't expecting this. I thought this was going to be wonderful. I delivered and redeemed the people out of the, out of the land of Egypt, and we're going to go out in the, in the wilderness, and I'm going to give them the Ten Commandments, and I'm going to lead them into the Promised Land, and, and we're going to live happily ever after. Wasn't expecting this. Wow. Uh, okay. Well, okay, Moses, they're your people now, and let me just kill them, and I'll give you a whole new, pe- new group of people. Notice how it goes on here, verse 11. Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your, your people? You know, hey, they're your people, not my people. Against your people, whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, with evil intent, he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all the land which I have spoken, and I will give to your descendants and they, will, they shall inherit it forever. So here's Moses correcting God, reminding God, hey God, did you not, did you not remember the covenant that you made here? As if God forgot that? 
and, and, and that God did not somehow think about what it might look like if, if uh, you know, he redeems these people and he brings them out in the wilderness and then he kills them all? What are the Egyptians going to think? Oh, oh, yeah, you're right. Thanks, Moses. I didn't think about it that way. Seriously? But then notice verse 14. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Seriously, it's that verse right there. So he changed his mind that a lot of this whole open theism is based on. Look, we all talk about God's immutability. He never changes, but the Bible says he changed his mind. So again, are we to assume that Moses corrected God's wrong thinking, that, that he showed God a better way? That he convinced God to change his mind? Well, one of the key principles of interpretation, of accurately interpreting the scriptures, is never let an obscure passage or a passage that's, that's hard to understand, just at face value, determine a doctrine. And make sure you go find other passages in the scriptures that address this very same issue and make sure you, you, you um, compare scripture with scripture. Um, and, and, and let Scripture speak as a whole, not just, I mean, you can find a verse in the Bible to, to prove anything. And so you have to take into consideration, for example, Numbers, uh, Numbers 23, 19. Listen to what this says. Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of a man that he should repent or change. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? And then just keep moving towards the middle of the Old Testament. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 29. Also the glory of Israel, this is God, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. For he is not a man that he should change his mind. You're like, okay, I'm really confused now. Because I got one verse that says he changed his mind. I got another verse that says he never changes his mind. He can't change his mind. So which is it? I knew the Bible wasn't true. There's contradictions all over it, right? No, that's not how we should, that's not the conclusion. I mean, how, how are we to understand this apparent contradiction? It's an apparent, it's not a contradiction, it's an apparent contradiction. The reason why it seems like a contradiction in, my mind, in our minds is because we are finite. We are limited in our understanding. And before we're quick to throw the Bible under the bus and say, oh, we can't trust the Bible. Well, is, is there possibly another way to, to interpret or understand these, this apparent contradiction? I would say it's rather simple. And that is that God was speaking to us in human terms that we can understand. It's called... An anthropomorphism, another big word. Don't try to remember that. Definitely don't try to write that down. You'll hurt yourself, okay? Anthropomorphism, I can't even say it. Anthropomorphism, which simply means that, that God uses human language um, to describe himself with human body parts, if you will. And we see that throughout the scriptures, that, that God describes himself as having a body, he talks about his ears and his eyes and his hands and his feet, the hands of God, the feet of God, the eyes of God, the ears of God. But does God have a body? 
Absolutely not. The Bible is very clear that God is spirit. God also talks about himself as waking up and rising early. Oh, so God sleeps now. No, we know God never sleeps. He never slumbers. Again, he's simply stooping down to communicate with his finite creatures in a language that we can relate to, that we can understand. And so when God says he changed his mind, the change was not in God, but in man, ultimately, in how he dealt with us. And it was very clear in Scripture in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel, if you obey me, I will what? Bless you. And if you disobey me, I will curse you. So that's what's going on here. God may appear to change, but he's consistently carrying out what he's already predetermined in eternity past. And again, even as Chris mentioned um, so well, that all of God's attributes are intertwined. You can't take down God's immutability without taking down his sovereignty at the same time. They stand or fall together. For example, just look at Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46, I love Love, love, love this passage, Isaiah 46, verse 9. God says, remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there's no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my purpose from a far country, Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass, I have planned it, surely I will do it. In other words, nothing can change or alter or thwart God's eternal plans. Some of you may remember from science class in junior high or high school, we learned a thing called the Doppler effect. You remember that? Um, the, the probably th- best illustration is you're standing um, on the, the, the edge of a train track and uh, all of a sudden you hear a train coming and it kind of sounds like this. Right? That's pretty good, right? That's how a tra- train sounds. <laughs> sort of. What, do you see how it starts real soft and all of a sudden gets really loud and then fades out? Why? From our perspective, where we're standing, it sounds like the sound, that, that sound changed, right? Did it change? No. To the guy driving that train, all he hears is ding, 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 the whole time, right? Why? Because he's on the train. So the engineer has a different perspective from the person standing on the edge of the track. And so even so, it may appear that God changes. Guess what? He's the engineer. And it's always the same for him. A.W. Tozer again says this, almost every heresy that has afflicted the church through the years has arisen from believing about God things that are not true or from overemphasizing certain true things so as to obscure other things equally true? Again, the need for balance, people. We need to be balanced. 
Don't emphasize or magnify one attribute to the exclusion of another. That's what he says. It's the, if you do that, you head straight for one of the dismal swamps of theology. You're going to end up in a swamp somewhere. You're going to go off the rails and you're going to land somewhere you don't want to be. And, and Tozer said, yet we're all constantly tempted to do that. To emphasize God's love more than his wrath, or to emphasize God's wrath more than his love. We need to balance these things out. Turn over to the New Testament. Look at Hebrews chapter 6 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 6, and I hope this is helpful, just thinking through. Again, just we're, what are we doing? We're musing, we're thinking about, um, we're growing in our understanding of who God is, and particularly his unchanging character. I want to keep you focused on why we're looking at each of these verses. It's all about God's immutability, his, 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 that he never changes. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. This is talking about the Abrahamic covenant. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and will surely multiply you. I mean, sometimes we say, I swear to God. Right, that's like, hey, I swear to God, I'm telling the truth. Well, who does God swear to? <laughs> he, he doesn't swear to anybody. He, he doesn't need to. He is God. And so what he says is true. He doesn't have to verify it by appealing to a higher power, of, a higher authority. He is the highest authority, the highest power. And so he says, I'll surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. This is Abraham waiting for this promise for a child. Basically, he said, I'm going to give you Isaac, this child of you and Sarah, far past the age of childbearing. Trust me, I'm going to provide a child through you, and from him will come a great nation who ultimately will be uh, the nation from which the Messiah comes that will not just be a blessing to the Jews, but also the Gentiles. That's the Abrahamic covenant in a nutshell. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise, for men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of that hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. Where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. We sang that line, this line in that song Cornerstone. Do you remember that? We have this anchor that holds behind the veil. It's straight out of this verse. And, and what, what, what is that anchor? It's, it's, it's knowing that it's impossible for God to lie. That there's an unchangeableness about God. That, that what, what is, and what a great illustration of, of something unchanging, and that is an anchor. I can't think of a better illustration than an anchor. What, what's the point of an anchor? An anchor is supposed to stay put, stay still. It's immovable, and it keeps anything connected to it from what? Drifting all over the place. It keeps that stayed and immovable as well. So guess what? If you want to remain immovable in the ever 
changing currents of life, you better have an anchor. Because if not, you're going to be drifting all over the place and getting splashed and you know, almost drowned with all the things, the storms of life where they come. Man, you need an anchor. And that anchor is, of course, Christ, ultimately. But this whole section here in Hebrews 6 is really referencing what happened between God and Abraham in Genesis 15. And you don't need to turn back there, but that's where the, 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 the Abrahamic covenant was actually ratified, if you will. It was, it was um, performed. And if you remember that story, uh, God said, okay, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and now let's make it official. And, uh, and so they did what they did back then when they made a covenant. Uh, the two people that were covenanting together or making a promise, they would take an animal and they would cut it in half and they'd set the two parts of the animal at two different places and they would together, they would take turns walking through those pieces of, 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 of animal in a figure eight. And that was just their way of, of symbolizing this covenant. And so they, they did everything just according to plan. They, cut, they got the animals, they cut it in half and God says, okay, I'm going to make this covenant with you and there's the two pieces of animal ready and then he puts Abraham to sleep. He just, he put him to sleep. And then it says that God passed through those animals in the form of a burning pot or a flaming fire. What was the point? Typically, a, a, an oath, a covenant involves what? Two people. And they both have to hold up their end of the bargain for it to work. But what God was saying is, guess what, Abraham, I don't need you for this one. I'm going to put you to sleep because guess what, I'm going to hold up my end of the bargain no matter what you do and no matter what Israel does, I'm holding up my end of the bargain. So you're really unnecessary in this whole process. And so this was a unilateral, unconditional covenant based on the unchanging character of God. And when Abraham woke up, he was committed. And yet he, he totally believed and trusted in God's promise, in God's covenant, that he was going to give him a child through which this great nation would come, even when God came back to him later and said, I want you to go kill that kid. I want you to kill this son that I promised to you to make this great nation of. And Moses didn't, go, or excuse me, Abraham didn't go, well, wait a minute, God, we, you, you and, uh, he said, okay. And he grabbed his son, grabbed the wood, headed on up to the mountain, made the altar, laid out his son, took the knife, ready to go for it in faith. Well, what was going on there? Was he a heartless, no compassion, didn't care about his son. You know, I, you know what I think was going on? Abraham had so much faith in the unchanging character of God that he keeps his promises that even if he killed Isaac, that God would raise him back to life. In fact, that's what it says in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, verse 17 it says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. This is the guy that was the promise. It was almost like he was, was going to kill the promise itself, and it was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendant shall be called. 
He considered that God, here it is, is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. And guess what? He did raise him back to life, not literally, figuratively, because he spared his life. And it was a, it was a, it was a powerful picture of, of, of God's substitutionary, Christ's substitutionary atonement as the, there was a ram stuck in the bush and, and, he, and he came and he killed that, that ram instead of his son. That was foreshadowing of Christ on the cross. The point is this, Abraham was absolutely convinced that God's promise would not change and could not change. He believed that God was was true to his word and would do what he said he would do, no matter what. He was reliable. God is reliable. He's dependable. He was worthy of his trust. He was, what's another attribute of God? Faithful. That God is faithful. And, And God's changelessness is expressed in his faithfulness. His changelessness is expressed in his faithfulness. These two divine attributes are intertwined because, and really because God is immutable, that's why he's faithful. And because he's faithful, he's immutable. It's like two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. And we know that God's faithfulness is, is expressed everywhere in Scripture. Uh, let me just read a few verses for us. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, because again, it's a complementary attribute of God's immutability. You can't talk about God being immutable and not talk about God being faithful. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand's generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. And then, of course, the Psalms, there's much talk of God's faithfulness, much praise of God's faithfulness in the Psalms. Psalm 33, verse 4. Psalm 33, verse 4. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. Psalm 36, verse 5. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Psalm 91. Psalm 91, verse 4. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. And then Psalm 100, verse 5. Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good, his loving kindness is everlasting, and his faithfulness to all generations. Listen, obviously God wanted his people to know that he can be trusted, that he keeps his promises, that he's worthy of our trust. And so the question we should ask ourselves, okay, how do we apply, how does the unchanging faithfulness of God apply to our lives? How do we apply this this doctrine of God practically in our lives? Well, I think it's very simple. We live by what? Faith. We live by faith, not by sight. Sometimes what we see is really sad. Sometimes what we see is really scary. 
And so he says, don't live by what you see, live by what? Faith. Live by faith. We need to have faith in God's faithfulness. Faith in God's faithfulness. And we're here right in Hebrews, Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is, what's the definition of faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not, what? Seen. For by faith, the men of old gained approval. And he goes on, uh, the writer of Hebrews, by faith, Abel did this, and by faith, Enoch did this, and by faith, Noah did this, and by faith, Abraham did this, and by faith, uh, uh, Moses did this, Jacob did this, Joseph did this. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Hudson Taylor, I love this definition of, of faith. Hudson Taylor simply said, faith is trusting in the faithfulness of God. That's faith. Trusting in the faithfulness of God. So what does that look like practically? For those of you who may be here this morning who are disobedient to God, you're defiant against Him, you've yet to acknowledge Him and and honor Him and give Him thanks and, and submit your life to Him, guess what? God's that doesn't change the fact that God's not faithful. He, he's a faithful God, whether you acknowledge it or not. And, and listen to what A.W. Pink said. He said, Here in his terror for the wicked, those who defy him, who break his laws, who have no concern for his glory, but who live their lives as though he existed not, must not suppose that when at the last they shall cry to him for mercy, he will alter his will, revoke his word, and rescind his awful threatenings. It ain't going to happen. No, he has declared, therefore will I also deal in fury. Mine eyes shall not spare, neither will I have pity. And though they cry in mine ears with a loud voice, yet will I not hear them. God will not deny himself to gratify their lusts. God is holy, unchangingly so. Therefore, God hates sin, eternally hates it. Hence, the eternality of the punishment of all who die in their sins. Not only does his word abound in illustrations of his fidelity and fulfilling his promises, but it also records numerous examples of his faithfulness in making good his threatenings. Pharaoh, Korah, Achan, and a host of others are so many proofs, and thus it will be with you unless you have fled or do flee to Christ for refuge. The everlasting burning of the lake of fire will be your sure and certain portion. God is faithful. And so to you that may have just woken up from your slumber this morning and go, whoa, God's faithful even to send me to hell, let me encourage you with what he's also faithful to do. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so God is faithful to those who are disobedient and defiant. God is also faithful for those who are experiencing his discipline. That might be you this morning. You might be experiencing the discipline of the Lord in some way. You're being tried. You're being tested. Psalm 119, verse 75 says, In faithfulness thou hast afflicted me. 
that even though you may not be feeling the love, if you will, from the Lord going, hey, I, I'm, what in the world is going on? I don't feel very loved by God right now. Well, guess what? Uh, all you feel is affliction. He has afflicted you in faithfulness. In faithfulness, God has afflicted you. Again, Pink says this, God is faithful in disciplining his people. He's faithful in what he withholds, no less than in what he gives. He is faithful in sending sorrow as well as in giving joy. The faithfulness of God is a truth to be confessed by us, not only when we're at ease, but also when we are smarting under the sharpest rebuke. When God smites us with the rod of chastisement, it is faithfulness which yields it. To acknowledge this means we humble ourselves before him. We own that we fully deserve his correction, and instead of murmuring, we thank him for it. God is greatly honored when under trial and chastening, we have good thoughts of him. Vindicate his wisdom and justice and recognize his love in his very rebukes. Oh, for grace to embrace that theology. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but that which is common to man. And God is what? Faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted or tried beyond what you're able, but with every trial, with every temptation, he'll provide a way of escape so you can endure it. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, verse 19, to those who are suffering according to the will of God. In other words, it's God's will that you're suffering right now. He ordained a trial, uh, some kind of suffering. He, he says, entrust your soul to a faithful creator. Entrust your soul to a faithful creator. And so God is faithful to the disobedient and to the defiant. He's faithful to those who are being disciplined by him. And God is faithful to those who may be disappointed or discouraged or defeated or depressed or maybe even doubting. There's so many verses that we could read, but maybe just one, one of my favorites, Lamentations, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 19. I mean, just the name of that book itself sounds sad, Lamentations. And it's true that Jeremiah was lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, and as he sat there on the, 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 the rubble watching the smoke rise from the rubble of, of what was once the holy city of God. He said in verse 17, this is Lamentations 3, verse 17, my soul has been rejected from peace. I've forgotten happiness. And so I say my strength is perished and so is my hope from the Lord. I mean, he lost everything that meant everything to him. He, 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 he had no peace. He had no happiness. He had no strength and he had no hope. He had lost it all. He was in a bad spot. I mean, it doesn't get any worse than that when you've lost peace, right, happiness, strength, and hope. He goes on, remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to mine, and therefore I have hope. In other words, he remembered something, and as he thought about it, he started to see the sun. The sun was starting to rise. There was a light at the end of the tunnel. It gave him hope. What was it? Verse 22, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your what? Faithfulness. Again, I'm quoting a lot from A.W. Pink, and if you've never read his 
little book, The Attributes of God. Hopefully this will motivate you to go buy it and read it because it's just profound. He says this, there are seasons in the lives of all when it is not easy, no, not even for Christians to believe that God is faithful. You ever been there? I know God's faithful, but I don't feel like it right now. It doesn't look like he is right now. I'm having a hard time believing that he is right now. Our faith is sorely tried, our eyes bedimmed with tears, and we can no longer trace the outworkings of his love. Our ears are distracted with the noises of the world, harassed by the atheistic whisperings of Satan, and we can no longer hear the sweet accents of his still small voice. Cherished plans have been thwarted. Friends on whom we relied have failed us. A professed brother or sister in Christ has betrayed us. We are staggered. We sought to be faithful to God, and now a dark cloud hides him from us. We find it difficult, yea, impossible, for carnal reason to harmonize his frowning providence with his gracious promises. And then he gives us advice. He says, ah, faltering soul, severely tried fellow pilgrim, seek grace to heed Isaiah 50.10, which says, who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of the servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? I mean, you're just in a dark place and you don't see any light around you. Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. When you're tempted to doubt the faithfulness of God, cry out, get thee behind me, Satan. Though you cannot now harmonize God's mysterious dealings with the avowals of his love. In other words, he's saying, he's saying, he's vowing you, I love you, I totally love you, and you're having a hard time figuring out the, how he's dealing, you, dealing with you, how he's treating you right now. You can't harmonize now his mysterious dealings with the avowals of his love. Wait on him for more light. In his own good time, he will make it plain to you. That's good theology, isn't it? That's practical theology. That's that's theology for the road. That's theology for life. We love that old hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not, as thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. And then we love that last verse. Pardon for sin and a peace that endurance. Endureth, excuse me, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Everything that Jeremiah said that he had lost, the hymn writer said, guess what? We, we find in Christ. Joy, strength, hope, peace. So whatever challenges or trials or disappointments that you might be facing right now in your life, whether it's the unexpected death of a loved one, the death of a marriage through divorce, physical and emotional pain and suffering, or any other tragedy that has got you right now in a place where you feel very unhappy and feel hopeless, I think that him. 
Great is thy faithfulness is a, is a constant reminder that God's promises are true, that he never changes, that his compassions never fail, and that his faithfulness to us in Christ is more than just good. It is great. Great is thy faithfulness. This week, Tulian Tavigian's ministry may have forever changed. George Hepner's life may have forever changed. And the United States of America may have forever changed. But God has not changed. God has not changed. That alone should provide us with the comfort and the confidence and the strength and the hope that we need to brave life in an ever-changing world. This is why God likens himself to a rock. What a great picture. A rock that we can cling to and stand on as we navigate the ever-changing currents of life. He's immovable when everything and everything else is moving, changing. And so I leave you with Isaiah 26, verse 3. The steadfast of mind that will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and how it does comfort our soul. It gives us confidence. It restores our, our it just, just calms and quiets our heart. It, it strengthens our, our, our minds and our bodies, Lord, when we feel like just giving up and we've lost all hope and Lord I pray that you would use the truths of your word that we've considered this morning just to minister to our body we, we're all here at different places in our lives today and experiencing different sets of circumstances Lord but at the end of the day we know it's all the same it's it's Lord we all need uh, comfort we all need hope and we all need a rock an anchor and so I pray that we'd find that in you through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.